The 10th chapter of Acts is really long, so I'm going to read a portion and then do some summary, a little bit more, and some summary. Listen for the word of the Lord. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. And so then Peter invites them in. They tell how they've been sent. He agrees to go with them. They get back to Caesarea, and Cornelius and Peter exchange visions that he was to call for Peter, and Peter tells about the sheep, and they say, we're ready to listen to you. And Peter says these words in verse 34. Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as Peter continues to preach, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles like it had at Pentecost, and they are baptized. One of the challenges with some Bible stories is how the dirty parts have been cleaned up, made acceptable for polite company here in church, and so we miss it. Probably doesn't help that we've stamped the word holy on the front of the book, but there are many pieces and parts that are beneath the surface and dirty, and we just miss it. This is a dirty story. Not, not pornographic. It's more like soiled or stained it should have been printed on newspaper so that when you got through reading it, you had to wash your hands. You know that feeling? Or maybe it's more like handling raw chicken, and you'd better use soap and water after reading it. But the dirty part is not so easy to see. Two weeks from Tuesday, I and a colleague will be leading a group 
to Israel. 20 or so pilgrims making our journey over there, and the very first place we will go is where this happened in Caesarea. Caesarea Maritima, to be exact, because there are many Caesareas in the Holy Land. And nowadays, if you're going to Caesarea and you're an Israeli, you pack your tennis racket and your golf clubs and your flip-flops because it's a resort on the Mediterranean, but not so much in the first century. That's the dirt underneath. Did, did you hear the dirty parts? Like the fact that they live in a town called Caesarea. It'd be like naming a town in Germany right after World War II and calling it Führer. It's supposed to remind us of the Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And yes, Cornelius is supposedly a spiritual man praying to God, but you never can be too certain about the enemy when they claim to be spiritual. You know, I'm, I'm told that Nazi officers in World War II would read Brahms at, or listen to Brahms at night and read the scriptures as good Lutherans. But the dirt in this story is not just on that side. Peter, the apostle, is staying in the home of a tanner, someone who works with the hides of unclean animals. You've driven across Kansas, haven't you? Those slaughterhouses, you can smell them for miles coming. That's how this story feels. A friend of mine used to say that after watching episodes of the cable show Breaking Bad, he felt like he needed a shower. That's how you're supposed to feel. Luke, as he tells this story, tells us about Cornelius has a vision to send for Peter, and Peter is up on the roof when this vision of these unclean animals, unkosher as we would say, come down, and he's tempted to eat, but he refuses. Never, never, Lord, I don't eat unclean. And the doorbell rings, and Peter has no idea that this vision has nothing to do with his diet. It has everything to do with his worldview. Is it possible that there is such a thing as kosher and unkosher people? That's what his vision's about. I mentioned last week that because Luke writes a gospel and then volume two, Acts, what he intends is that the story started in Jesus will continue in the church, or so we hope. So, for instance, in the gospels, Jesus is always teaching and preaching. So it's really not that much of a surprise that when you open the book of Acts, that's what they do. Peter, he preaches at Pentecost. They're always preaching and teaching. They, they preach at the synagogues, at the temple, down by the river. They'll preach anywhere. So as far as that legacy goes, preaching and teaching, check. Yep, got that. The church really does remarkably well in carrying on the tradition of Jesus. He was always healing people. You, you can read the gospel. He's always healing people. So when you get to the book of Acts, it's a little bit of a shock, but... But they do the same thing. I mean, it's easy enough to teach, but to heal people. Peter, that man approaches them. The apostles, they say, um, we, don't, we don't have any money, but we have the power of Jesus. We, you're healed. Healing, Jack. Or how about feeding people? In the gospel, Jesus was always feeding people. 5,000 people. And in the book of Acts, well, that's where it starts to break down. About the time we were going to give them an A, it looks more like B plus, maybe something like that, because feeding people is about inclusion. And if there's anything where the church has not done so well, both in the past and all the way up to the present, 
let's face it, our record on inclusion is not that good. In the gospel, Jesus eats with tax collectors all the way up to Pharisees. Or as one scholar put it, it would be in our day like from popes to pimps. Or pimps to popes. Jesus eats with anyone. With everyone. And the church comes along and says, "Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll draw a line here. Some of you heard me talk about this class that I'm teaching on the sermon and the short story. And one of the stories we read is by Raymond Carver. It was nominated as one of the best short stories of the 20th century. It's the story of this fellow nicknamed Bub, which is a perfect name for this guy. He is a Bub. He's not real happy when his wife informs him that Robert is coming to stay with them. Bub doesn't like house guests in the first place, but Robert is blind. And Bub just doesn't really get that either. Now, he's heard the stories. His wife used to work for Robert. She read books on the tape, helped him with his correspondence, that sort of stuff. And near the end of her employment, he remembers the story of how Robert asked if he could touch her face, and she let him, and how it was so moving. It was a spiritual experience, and she wrote a poem about it. Bub is not into poetry. He's not into touching people in their face. Bub's the kind of guy that likes to drink scotch at night. You know, a couple of scotches and and watch some TV. Bub's the kind of guy who, when he finds out Robert is coming, says, the blind guy with the beard? Why does he have a beard anyway? He's blind. What does he care what he looks like? And when she says, could you be more sensitive? His wife, Beulah, just passed away. And all Bub can say is, Beulah? What kind of name is that? Was she black? Bub's a jerk. A jerk. So when Robert arrives, it is really awkward. They stand in the foyer, hands in their pocket. They sit down to dinner. Bub pours him a scotch. A couple more scotches. And then after dinner, the wife goes upstairs to get the spare bedroom ready. And Bub is alone with the blind man. He has no clue what to do. So he turns on the TV says, you care what I watch? You want to watch with me? He has no clue of what he's saying. He doesn't know that Robert has a TV that he watches all the time. So they're flipping through the channels, and it must be PBS because they come across this special about cathedrals. The great cathedrals of Europe in Spain and England and France, Notre Dame, all the usual. And they're just these gorgeous places. And then... Bob says to Robert, he says, do you, do you even know what a cathedral looks like? Like if I said, what's the difference between a cathedral and a Baptist church? Would you have any clue? And Robert says, well, I know they're big. They're grand and they're glorious because it represents the grandeur of God. And I know people worked generations, their lives, and never saw it finished. And I know I, that's, that's about all I know. And then he says to Bub, could, could you describe one? Bub's had a lot of scotch. He, he just can't do it. I mean, he tries. And then Robert says, I know. We could draw one. You and me, we could draw one. 
And maybe it's the scotch, but he agrees. He says, oh, okay. And he, and he fetches a pen and a paper sack from the grocer, and he cuts it open, and he makes this kind of canvas, and he puts it on the coffee table, and the two of them get down on their knees, and Robert says, now here's what you do. You put your hand on the pen, and I'll put my hand on yours. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait a second. That is not what Bub is into. He's not into touching. He's not into drawing, but he's had so much scotch, so... He puts his hand on the pen, and Robert puts his hand on his, and he says, start drawing, my friend, and he starts. He draws this huge rectangle, because you've got to start somewhere, and vaulted ceilings, and vaulted doors, and great windows, stained glass. They just start drawing, and, and Robert says, I'll bet you, you never thought anything like this could happen in your life, did you? But it's a mystery, isn't it, this life? And then he starts telling him what to put in there. He says, put some flying buttresses, you know, those wings on the outside, and, and put some people in there. What good's a cathedral if you don't have people in there? And they are drawing away. And then as they get near the end, Robert says, now close your eyes and keep drawing. And he does. He closes his eyes with the hand of the blind man on it, and he draws. And then Robert says, now, now open your eyes and tell me what you see. But Bub doesn't open his eyes. He doesn't need to. He, he knows he is in the same place, but he is not the same man. And with his eyes closed, he says, it's really something. It is really something. In that class... We just sit in silence at the end of that story. And we marvel at a blind man teaching a sighted man how to see and the two of them building a church. And I always think about Peter and Cornelius. Nothing like an apostle learning the gospel from a Roman soldier, a Gentile. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but Peter says, now I truly understand God shows no partiality. And I'm thinking, whoa, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean now you truly understand? You preached on this at Pentecost. What, were you just faking it? You said God's love is for everybody. You've preached on it every single time. And now you get it? Yeah. Now he finally gets it. The longest journey that some of us will ever take in our spiritual lives is to move from saying we are inclusive to living it. Years ago, Fred Craddock, great disciples preacher, was in Kansas City for a conference. And I told my students, you got to go hear Fred Craddock. I mean, if you want to graduate, you got to go hear Fred Craddock. So they, they thought, well, let's go hear Fred Craddock. And we went this night, and Fred told this story. He said, imagine it's a beautiful sunny afternoon like today, and you decide to go for a walk. And you come across this man, and he's bent over a pile of bricks. And he's got a tape measure, and he's measuring all the bricks. And some of them he stacks up nice and neat, and some of them he just throws away. And so, you know, you're curious, and you ask him, what are you, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a church. You're what? He goes, I'm building a church. And some people think the only way to build a church is if every brick is exactly the same, same size and shape and texture and color. It's the only way to build. But it, 
It's just a pile of bricks. Never amounted to anything. But around the corner on the same day is this other guy, and he's bent over a pile of rocks. And they're all different shapes and sizes and colors and textures. And you ask him, so what are you doing? And he says, building a church. (laughs) I mean, how are you going to do that? And he says, I'm building a church. And that's when you notice he's got this wheelbarrow next to him full of some wet, gloppy stuff. He stirs it up every once in a while. When he puts a rock down, puts a big glob and then another rock and then another glob and then another rock. And 98 years later, it's still standing. It's a church. Of course, it was that stuff that he put on in between that made the difference, right? And, and it looked like cement. But that's not what he called it. That's not what he called the stuff that holds the church together. You know what he called it. 